It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. I just spent the past 30 to 40 minutes diving into so many different conversations with today's guest, Jovanka, who I've had the pleasure of knowing for quite some time. In fact, I don't recall when we met or how we met. Do you know off the top of your head, Jovanka? I don't. I don't. But I know that I have been following you for years and learning from you for years. Okay. <laughs> so years, years, uh, imagine as we're talking today, a memory will come back. I do, of course, remember how supportive you were when my book came out. So I'm so thrilled to support you with your book that we're going to get into today about reclaiming wellness. And there is just so many directions. I want to say, as I've already said to you, Jovanka, that I don't think we're going to be able to cover all of the topics that I would like to or that we'll organically get into because you just have such an interesting background professionally, personally. You have fascinating passions. I I was just digging into your Twitter account and just feeling like I could read through every one of your posts and learn something. And I uh, have only skimmed the surface of your book thus far, but wow, did you touch upon things that I really want to learn more about And especially hearing more about your experience being Black and Latina around health and healing. And that is something that I'm trying to better understand as much as I can by learning from people like yourself and really knowing, like, first of all, what does it mean to be a Black Latina woman in the United States right now where it feels like there's a lot of racial tension but also helping the communities, the BIPOC communities, as you do understand the power of herbal medicine and plant-based living, which I feel like I don't see enough education on. I don't see enough people talking about this. And through my journey with this podcast, it became very humbling when I realized towards the beginning of this show that I was amplifying the voices of a lot of white people. I was amplifying the voices of a lot of men. And I, when I stepped back and examined it, I thought, wow, that's because I'm used to hearing from their voices. And I'm actually curious to start off with, Jovanka, like for you being non-white, do you feel like you're hearing a lot of those voices too? Or, or do you feel like maybe white people like myself just naturally start to pay more attention to other white people? It's a complex question, but it's something that I'm constantly asking myself, like, what will it take for me to really balance this out? Because Mm. right now I still feel like I end up just taking in a lot of information from other white people when it comes to wellness. And I have to be very proactive to not. And I'm curious, is that something that you experience or do you have a different experience given that you're not part of that? white community, at least in terms of how you look. And and even we were talking about your heritage with 
when you did your DNA test and Mm -hmm. finding out that what you're 24% white, White. (laughs) which is also interesting. Somebody might not make that assumption if they just look at you at all. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And so I think the idea of just not making a lot of assumptions is really important, but I want to pause and hear and hear from you on terms of that question. Like, do you feel like yeah. wellness is dominated by white people? Yeah, the the short answer is yes. It certainly things are slowly shifting, but when I discover this concept of wellness and the practices around it, I was often the only person of color. Think about whatever you can think about: yoga classes, meditation retreats, like conferences, like. Even the products that were being advertised and and marketed, they were marketed and advertised to a very homogeneous community. Somebody that looks uh, female, that is white, that's often wealthy or well wealthy by society standards. And it was a little bit disheartening at first, but I was in so much pain and discomfort that it, that pushed me to continue to look for more. Fast forward 15 years from my journey and now the work that I do, I see a lot more people of color in the wellness world, but still we have a diversity and inclusion problem where we're still seeing products and services being promoted and marketed and used by a very homogeneous group. And it's important that we recognize that. So to answer the second part of your question, As people in the wellness world, whether we are those that hold the space, you have a podcast or you have a yoga studio or you have a product or service that you want to, it's important that we recognize that these practices come from communities of color, what we know today as multicultural communities. They stem from, most of them stem from these communities. And it's critical that we learn its history to understand the nuances and the beauty beyond, there's always something you're going to be able to learn. And then hopefully open those spaces, open your mind first, of course. And we, you and I talked about this off camera, we were talking about what can you do as the dominant culture to open the space, to allow some of these multicultural communities to reclaim the practices of their ancestry. This is in essence what the book is all about. That is, I'm just like so thrilled that you wrote about that because it's a question that I reflect on a lot. I'm also curious, do you feel coming from Puerto Rico, now that you live in Los Angeles along with me, like what are the culture around wellness like in those two places? And and have you lived in other places that have contrasted the environment here? Because I feel like Los Angeles is also associated with young white women in wellness culture, like it feels like they are, or we are, I should say, because I identify that way as well, like the kind of the poster child of, of Los Angeles in a lot of ways, because we see young white female celebrities and influencers pushing products, talking about yoga, you know, all of these things. And certainly that's influenced me, probably part yeah. of why I had to really like pull, consciously pull myself away and say, can I listen to other people? So right. do you feel like that's your experience in Los Angeles as well? And whether or not it, <laughs> it is, how does that contrast with other places that you've lived? Yeah. I mean, certainly growing up in Puerto Rico, I moved uh, into from Puerto Rico to New York when I was in my early 20s to go to college. And I grew up in 
And right now I remember taking it for granted when I was writing the book, but in a relatively simple, uncomplicated childhood with homemade foods and tropical fruits that were accessible from the neighbor's trees and whatnot. And moving away from that and moving into what I believe was the diet of, you know, the modern societies. And as a young 20-something-year-old, I was eating fast food all the time and pizza and sneakers. And my body rebelled. And when I realized that I was having issues that Western medicine couldn't solve and I needed to look elsewhere, I went to places in New York City. I happened to be living in New York City at the time, which is such a rich cultural city that it was easy for me to get lost and deep in communities like the Chinese community and the Indian community and even the Latin American community, South America community, where I learned a lot about shamans that have been living in the United States for 50 years, but brought all these practices with them from South America and the Ayurvedic practitioners and the traditional Chinese medicine practitioners. So my first foray in wellness came from people that also looked and sounded different than the normal or the general population, if you will. And that's where whom I learned from. Then moving to LA years later, I was a little bit taken aback by it. <laughs> I was like, what is going on? Every time, by then I was fully vegan. So I would be going to these vegan restaurants and I would be looking around. I'm like, okay, yes, yeah, so I'm the only black person in this room. That's okay, I guess. It was not until the beginning of the pandemic when I started to realize that even I, as a practitioner and as a wellness, the person that practiced and used some of these practices, I also moved away from the multicultural aspects of these practices. And then I made it my goal with my educational initiative, which happens to also be called Reclaiming Wellness, to bring some of these practices back to these communities at no cost or a very low cost. And so from the educational communities, it stemmed into what then became the book. So great to hear your perspective and and so honest and refreshing. And it has me thinking about this, the ignorance that I had because I wasn't, I didn't have a reason, motivation to focus outside of my experience as a white woman, you know, and that's really changed over the last few years And I was thinking back to how I guess I always hopefully was not paying super close attention to color. And I remember hearing and meeting people that, you know, in the black vegan community. And I just thought like, of course, like they're included. Of course, they're equal. Like, you know, there must be enough representation. But from your perspective and the work that you're doing, do you feel like there's a big imbalance. And what have you been doing to shift that to make sure that there is more diversity and inclusivity? Yeah, there definitely is. Even in my own practice as an herbalist and coach, 99% of my clients were white. And there could be a million reasons for that. It could be that, you know, if you have disposable income, then you'll be able to go to a practitioner and pay for the services that are not covered by insurance or by Medicaid. But as I said, it was when the beginning of the pandemic started and you started to hear these statistics about the comorbidities that were affecting people and that were and people that were struggling with COVID and dying from COVID at a faster rate. 
and the reasons why, right? People that didn't have access to preventative practices or measures. And I was like, this is not acceptable. It's, it was really heartbreaking to me that the practices that came from our ancestry where we moved away from them and we needed to find a way to reclaim them. So I created this initiative. I started, I just started from my house, just in quarantine, like everybody else, emailing every and any nonprofit and educational organization I could find, letting them know here's who I am. And I will happily show you how to live better, do herbal medicine classes or cooking lessons and show you how to buy, eat the rainbow and how to eat more plant whole foods. And that became a big, big deal because people got not only excited and I realized how big an impact something like an hour worth of education a week can make on in the lives of many. And eventually I decided to start reading and educating myself a little bit more deeply into the history of those cultural practices and how modern medicine is now giving us the realization we're now realizing the proof that these practices are incredibly effective. And so that's where I created the book as a way to marry the old with the new, show people there is a way for you to reclaim these practices. There's obviously thousands of years of anecdotal evidence, but there's modern science evidence showing us how effective they are and how we can incorporate them into our wellness routine. You touched upon something that I'd love to hear more about, which is the income side of it. And I think this is part of recognizing privilege. I guess I thought that I had perspective on what it was like to, quote, struggle. Like I think back into being, you know, a kid and depending on my parents and their income, like what foods we would buy and how I remember when I first heard about Whole Foods, it was seen as the expensive store So we didn't go in there. We wouldn't shop at places like that. Like that was my experience with the journey to access a healthier lifestyle. And I remember in in college when I went vegan and how expensive it all seemed to me. But technically, it wasn't that far out of reach because technically, I lived in a city. I lived in Boston at the time. I was going to school. I was going to a private college where you know I had access to education and other people where I could learn about these things. I had access to the grocery stores. They were just a stretch for me. They weren't inaccessible. And I was surrounded by people that were talking about things. It was easy for me to add more of them into my life. When I decided to move to Los Angeles, which is also a privilege of being able to relocate, I had access to enough resources where I could go f- seek out communities and it didn't feel that hard once I learned about what, like it was relatively challenging for me, but not relatively challenging for other people. So I would love to know more about like the the income challenges, like with you saying that the high percentage of white people that are clients of yours, mm-hmm. you mentioned the income side of it. Like, is it, tell me more about that, I guess. Like, I just want to learn like statistically, what are people struggling with financially? What are their challenges? And where does access get in the way of them learning about the things that you're teaching? You know, I think that the key word here is access, access to information, access to food. You'll be surprised how much people want to eat better and incorporate practices that make them better. 
we've heard, we've all heard the concept of food deserts with the that those news that you may have seen in a couple of weeks ago with that shooter in the supermarket in Buffalo, New York, that went to a supermarket, which happens to be the only supermarket in that entire part of town. It's a great example of the inequalities. And we can talk about how that came. This is probably a topic for another episode, but it's been going on since the beginning of the 20th century when cities were actually fully built and highways were built. And the people that were responsible for all of that decided, well, we're going to separate certain communities because we don't want certain communities to be together. And that could mean building big avenues or high rises or bridges and and whatnot to separate communities. And then on top of that, certain people didn't have the opportunities to educate themselves and get out of the cycle of poverty. In some other cases, it will be situations where people didn't have the opportunity to buy houses in a better neighborhood where then the resources were more accessible and more available. Fast forward three or four generations, you have an entire generation of people who have never lived near a supermarket or who have never had access to a green area, like a park, like a city park. And so you literally have a group of people that are struggling to learn how to eat better, but they don't actually know where to start. And that's part of what I teach. I also always put my feet in the, my ideal avatar, as you will, is always a woman that is a single woman, a professional, but that professional could be making $150,000 or she could be making $40,000 and be a single mother of two that works really, really hard and is trying to keep her children out of trouble and getting them out in the world and hopefully get them to a better educational stage than she ever got to. And how are you going to tell that woman, oh, it's important that you eat only organic food or it's important that you have only certain types of fruits and vegetables when she herself, all she knows is what the marketing lobby has been telling her. It's all about these foods and you're supposed to have protein is the only thing that matters. And, you know, you're supposed to have this, that and the other thing. And once you start educating people and letting them know with very simple techniques, it doesn't have to be complicated. It's simple as one of the things that I tell people is eat the rainbow and start with what you love. If you love potatoes, great. Let's start there. Let's find ways to cook potatoes in a different way. And maybe we'll, the next step will be finding different kinds of potatoes. Maybe it'll be a Japanese sweet potato or a sweet potato, a regular sweet potato that might have different nutrients. And as I teach you how to cook that and how to make it palatable and exciting for you to share it with your family, I'm going to show you about the nutrients that that food is going to bring into your life, has the ability to potentially expand your lifetime. And people get so excited. People literally cry and tell me, my children are asking me, where is the asparagus? Jovanka said to buy asparagus, to make asparagus fries and We don't have asparagus because you have to drive 40 minutes to the next supermarket to find the asparagus or the mushrooms or whatever it might be. So we have to learn to be compassionate and recognize that there's always a backstory to the person that you see in front of you and learn about that story so that it can inform you and hopefully 
get you to open up to learn and bring your knowledge into those communities. That is so beautiful, the way that you are educating me right now. You know, I was thinking about how much of a privilege it is to be ignorant about the history of other people because someone like me can easily grow up in a bubble. And I think it's the way that we look at life is so relative to our personal experiences, right? And this is part of the mission that I'm on personally is like, I just want to get outside of my bubble and my biases because it feels so limiting and it also feels so disrespectful. Like I think about how I've gone on this journey of learning about plant-based eating and environmentalism and holistic living and all these things I'm passionate about. But there seems to be a lot of bias in those spaces, especially around this idea of access, where it feels so privileged to say to somebody, well, you need to eat organic. It's not that much more expensive. But the truth is that organic actually can be twice as much as something else is sometimes. And for somebody who's struggling to just get to the grocery store, now they have to go spend more time finding the organic food, spend more money buying the organic food, which also could be vastly different price point wise in a different city. Like in California, we also have the privilege of living in a state where access to fresh fruit and vegetables is plentiful. I mean, I can walk to multiple stores and farmer's markets. Mm -hmm. Like that I've had to just say like, wow, I need to step back and not make assumptions that other people have the same access as me, let alone the same income. And that concept that I've really been bothered by recently is, and I've said it too, like I'm working on not saying these things anymore of like, if I can do it, you can do it. Like even saying this right now to you makes me cringe because I'm like, whoa, like who am I talking to? You know, like it's saying a phrase like that is can be so offensive to somebody who's really yeah. different than you because it's not true that if you can do it, you know, or if I can do it, you can do it. And I mean, the times I've walked into people's houses, Javanka, and like kind of made judgments about the type of food in their cupboards, you know, mm -hmm. friends of mine. And I'm just like, ooh, like I need to stop doing that. <laughs> yeah. You know? <laughs> you know, I think it's a journey for all of us and we evolve. But what a beautiful thing you are doing, Whitney, that people like you, and this is what I'm seeing in the last, you know, with every good, there's always something bad and, and vice versa. And what a gorgeous thing it is that out of the horrendous thing of this pandemic and the racial reckoning that happened immediately after the beginning of the pandemic, we I'm seeing more and more people say, like you with a platform and with a some power to say, I need to do more or I need to do better. I don't need to necessarily do more because I know everyone has their stuff and everyone is really busy and trying to do the best that they can. But what a gorgeous thing it is to me for me to hear that people say, I want to do better. I want to learn from other people. I want to see their perspectives. It's that whole concept when you hear somebody say, You've heard the, these stories about, oh, you know, I, I can't be racist because I have a black friend. But do you? 
Have you heard about their history? Do you know about their grandparents? You know why their grandparents never went to college? Because I hear that all the time. Well, why can't just just Black people get it together and go and, you know, move on from their entry-level work and go to college? Do you know what it takes to go to college? Do you know what it costs? Do you know what what happened in the life of that person that probably was incredibly smart and a wasted talent? How much more compassionate you become. I think it's a gorgeous, it's a beautiful thing that people like you or, and even like me to some extent, because I consider myself a person of privilege in many respects, even as a person of color, that I can say enough is enough. I'm not interested in seeing this pain anymore without making a difference, without doing something to change this. I love that way that you just phrased that because, you know, it is also tricky, this idea of doing enough, right? I think that you pointed this out in your book, how, and even just now when you're saying your target audience is a single woman who maybe has has children and low income because it's so much challenge in that. I, I don't have experience with that, but I hear about it a lot and I recognize how challenging that must be to be trying to do it all on your own and taking other care of people and being faced with all of these obstacles. And yet it still seems like they're pressured to do more. And Mm -hmm. that idea of not doing enough or not being enough is rampant in our society. And I think that's that in itself feels like an epidemic of like, why do we constantly feel like we have to do more, more, more in some cases, it's all relative to what we're talking about, right? Because mm-hmm. I think it's important to be better, right? We want to be better in the way that we treat other human beings. We want to do more to advocate for the rights of everybody. Mm-hmm. We want to work on paying attention to our health. The latter of which, though, can be very challenging. I'd love to hear your perspective on this because, first of all, health is very relative. And it can actually become unhealthy when you're obsessive about constantly improving. That can actually have the opposite effect on you. Do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. And recognizing that you are a universe, even if you're a twin, you're so much different than everybody else. You have to recognize that your state of wellness or what we know as homeostasis, right, the state of being healthy will mean different things to you than to me. And I'll give you a perfect example. I have a 14-year-old nephew who had a stroke at birth and he is partly paralyzed. He is otherwise a very healthy, very smart young man that is lovely and happy otherwise. If you look at him behaving and moving around the world, you will think that this person is not well, when in fact he is. He is well in his reality. So whether it is that or somebody struggling with cancer or, you know, any kind of health condition, there is a way for you to be balanced, to be well. And that is what we're striving for. It's not necessarily to be healthy and skinny or whatever it is that society tells us is balanced in a way that we can actually feel content and at peace in body, mind and soul. And I wanted to also make a quick note about something you mentioned a few minutes ago about us do not doing enough. And especially for us women, it is so true. We are natural givers. 
And if you think about that woman that is a mother, that is a professional, that takes care of her community, her partner, her children, when is it time for her to reclaim her space, her time, and whatever practice she wants to incorporate during that time and space? One of the things that I mentioned to every client, and in my book, I mentioned it too, because it has to be repeated over and over, is spend time on a day where you don't have a lot to do. Spend time walking around your space and reclaiming that space, whatever it might be. It might be the bathroom, the backyard, the den, a spare bedroom. Then find the time that you need to reclaim. And it could be that you need to wake up an extra half an hour early to find that extra half an hour. And then once you have that space and that time, what are you going to do? Is it making a nice cup of grounding tea? Is it cooking something that you know is going to be really yummy and healthy? Or it could be listening to a podcast or having or listening to music and having a good cry, <laughs> letting it all hang out. But it's critical as women, especially, that we recognize that we don't have to do it all. We are doing enough. And you will still, if tomorrow is your last day on this planet, chances are people will miss you and they will recognize, somebody will recognize how much you've done for you. So it's important that we recognize that as well. Absolutely. Isn't it amazing how that's such a simple piece of advice and a simple message, and yet we need to be reminded of it constantly. And I think that's because we're fighting against the other message of you're not enough, and which is so loud and so strong. And it also reminds me of something else I want to touch upon when it comes to like that power. You and I offline, before we started recording, we were discussing how there's the power imbalance can feel so overwhelming and it can lead us to feel like we don't have control. We can't do anything. You and I were talking about this in the context of all of the recent tragedies. We're recording this in May 2022. And just like the second half of this month, that some really awful things have happened in our country. And a lot of them seem to be either targeting race or involving racial injustice. And as you mentioned, like the grocery store shooting, it's just like horrific. And mm-hmm. that's just, you know, a few examples of things that mm-hmm. happen so much in this country. And I was saying how my perception is that there are a lot of older white men in government, especially or places of power, who are kind of trying to minimize the voices of people saying this is not okay. And they're trying to say, we've got this under control. But the reality Mm -hmm. is, so many of us feel like, no, this you do not have this under control. You may be in control, but this is not okay with us. And I think that's a very tender issue for me, Jovanka, is like, I felt so much in my life of people minimizing me. And I think that's Mm. a lot of that experience has been that my brain works differently. And I've had needs that have gone unaddressed because I didn't Mm. even fully understand my needs to begin with until recently. And so I went so much of my life being someone who would say, hey, I'm not okay with this. And I can't tell you how many times people in my life have said, Whitney, it's okay. Like, you're too sensitive. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, what you're saying, like, isn't important. I like that minimized experience I've felt. I think maybe that's the reason I feel so drawn to help others that are marginalized. It's like, I have had at least some version of that of my own. And 
I'm not okay with that. I think if somebody is shouting and saying, I'm in pain, I'm unhappy, I'm afraid, my needs aren't being met, it is unacceptable to ignore those yeah. voices. And Absolutely. I don't know, fully know where I was going with this, but I, <laughs> I just feel like we live in this time where so many people's needs aren't being met. Yeah. I'm just not it, okay with it. Yeah. It comes down to power, as you said. You know, I talk all the time with my partner who happens to be a white male about this dynamic of power and how we have slowly realized that a lot of others now have a voice. And we always kind of half kiddingly say, well, you know, if you've been in power and you've been the only one in power for a millennia, and now you're told that you have to share in that power, you know, you're going to rebel, right? You're going to get not happy. And so I recognize from a compassionate level why society is having so many struggles is because, as you said so beautifully, white men are in control, but this is out of control. And it's out of control because people are not given a forum and not being allowed to say, I have a voice and my voice is valuable and it is important and I am worthy. And what I can say to that is we just have to compassionately continue to fight. This era will eventually pass. I, it may not happen in our lifetime. In our lifetime, I do believe that eventually we will get to a point where it's more of a softer feminine energy type society where we will lead with kindness and compassion and empathy. We don't have any empathy towards anybody that we don't know about. And this is one of the, and it could be extrapolated to almost every part of society, wellness, but also everything else. It's very hard to love what you don't really know. And so let's just start there. Let's start by being curious about other people, other perspectives, others' history, others' practices, and recognize the beauty of that history to learn to fall in love a little bit more with something that doesn't look or sound like us. Oh, I just love that. I have chills hearing you share that because it's so true. And that leads me to something else I want to make sure that we address, which is cultural appropriation in the wellness world. You know, I actually got called out for this in my book, which you were so supportive of, of the vegan ketogenic diet cookbook. There's a recipe in there that my friend Nicole, who you know as well as the recipe developer of the book, she named each of the recipes and she named one of them a Buddha bowl. And before somebody brought this to my attention, I didn't take any issue with that term because I've heard it so many times and I see it in restaurants, I see it in other cookbooks and it's just like something I associate with a bowl of food that has a lot of different types of things in it and it wasn't until someone said, hey, that's cultural appropriation that I had an opportunity to step back and go, wow, I had no idea. Thank you for pointing that out. And I have done multiple episodes on that, including one with Tony, who runs Plant Based on a Budget. And she came on mm -hmm. to address some of that too. And it actually created some really great dialogues with us stemming out of my ignorance. And it opened up <laughs> my mind to how many things have been culturally appropriated but for someone of privilege who's never had to acknowledge that, I just kind of brush over it. I'm like, oh, okay, like th this is fine with me. I don't see any issue with it until yeah. somebody else from a different culture says, actually, there is an issue with this. 
And you probably didn't notice it because you're a white woman. And it's like, oh, (laughs) okay. (laughs) Thank you. This is extremely humbling. So I'm curious, like, are you sensitive to cultural appropriation? Does it come up a lot in your work? And how can we avoid culturally appropriating? How can we speak out against it? Because I I certainly don't see it going away very quickly, but I want to advocate for saying like, this isn't okay and I I don't want to be part of it. But I also have to like take off my blinders because I'm sure it's still happening around me without my awareness. Yeah. You know, cultural appropriation is everywhere in the wellness world, everywhere, right? From, again, the Lululemon cladded women going to yoga classes all the way up to the billion dollar supplement industry utilizing foods and supplements and botanicals and marking them up and selling them to you for exorbitant prices. We've all been appropriating wellness for many, many years. I think certainly recognizing that there is something we don't know. We don't know where these foods come from and the price that it costs, not just to bring it to your home, but to grow them in some other part of the world and the people that are attached to the process of growing and transferring that food into your country. Because remember, we're all very much interconnected. It's important that we recognize that. But more importantly, your point about how do we get around it? Because you said it right. I don't know that it is about all of a sudden deciding I'm never going to use this because otherwise it's considered cultural appropriation. These practices have been passed on from generation to generation for a reason. And they're incredibly valuable and it's incumbent upon us to continue to use them and benefit from them. Instead, what I like to ask people is to focus on cultural appreciation. So it could be as simple as I'm having a recipe that I'm going to call Buddha Bowl and I'm going to put before I, I post the recipe, I'm going to tell you a little bit about why is this called a Buddha Bowl? Who was Buddha? What kind of food do the people back then ate? And why are we now so excited about eating these kinds of foods? And it could very well be that it was the original type of food is very different than what we see today as a Buddha bowl, but it stemmed from this place. And then we peppered it with our own modern ways and foods and it became richer still. And what a beautiful thing that is. So we don't ever... I don't ever want people, especially people in the dominant culture, to feel like, oh, well, I can't do anything right, or I'm, I'm always wrong, or what am I supposed to do, not, not ever do this or not ever go there? No, I want you to open your mind and your heart and find ways to incorporate the history and the people and the culture that brought us these amazing practices so that we can learn to appreciate in a more fulfilling way for all of us. I just love the way that you <laughs> you state <laughs> these things. You're such a, a powerful way with words and it's so comforting and it really leads to your skills as a teacher, as a coach. You know, I, I just, I feel like I'm simultaneously learning, but also feeling better. And it's like, you are just living out that mission. And along these same lines, I was actually last night watching the um, the new Keeping Up with the Kardashian, or I think it's just called the Kardashian show on Hulu, which I've, I just find myself fascinated as many people are by 
these women that have such a huge impact on our society right now. And in the episode I saw Courtney, I believe, she's trying to get pregnant and she went to an Ayurvedic spa in Los Angeles. And I was watching it. Yeah, it was neat. She's doing like a whole cleanse, like a huge part of the episode is about the Ayurvedic side of it. But I was watching it feeling, having some mixed feelings. Like, first of all, I was thinking like, is this cultural appropriation at all? You know, this huge Ayurvedic spot, you probably even know it uh, (laughs) because it's not that far from where you live. And I think it's wonderful to give people access to it, but I'm imagining it's quite expensive to do the treatment that she's Mm. going through. Like I kept thinking about it you know, the woman that owns the spa comes to Courtney's house and gives them private consultation. And then she takes them to the spa and they do like a seven day cleanse and like all these services. And in my head, I'm thinking, wow, this must be so expensive. And the episode of the woman that owns the spa is like teaching a lot and sharing. And I'm thinking like, wow, this is neat. Like people are learning about it. But then I start thinking about how Courtney has her company Poosh And actually, in an upcoming episode, they tease that she's partnering with Gwyneth Paltrow on her Mm -hmm. website. And so you've got these two very wealthy, powerful women talking about a lot of wellness practices, but to your point, charging a lot of money for the products that they sell and advocating for things that aren't that accessible financially to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So while I appreciate that they're talking about these things, these women are also on the high end of wellness Mm -hmm. constantly. And I wonder, how does that impact other people? Is that Mm -hmm. advocating for people to be obsessed with status and money and buying Mm -hmm. things that are way overpriced when like at the end of the day, isn't our Ayurveda something that can be practiced for far less money? So how do you feel when you see these things? Do you also have mixed feelings about... Yeah. Powerful <laughs> celebrities and influencers promoting things that, you know, to your point, have been well marked up and like, yeah, are they being mismarketing them? Yeah, absolutely. I don't follow the Kardashians. So it's interesting. I might actually Google that and find out. It sounds to me like what you were talking about is they're doing a panchakarma type cleanse, which is very That's exactly right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So people was. do it a yeah. lot either when they're doing, when they're in the middle of chronic diseases or when they're trying to cleanse. To, that's a very popular thing to do when you're trying to go get pregnant and, and you have, have had issues. It's interesting because, well, the Kardashians are a completely different topic. I truly believe that they're the poster children of cultural appropriation. <laughs> but again, you don't have to hate them. You don't have to be, you know, go against the grind. You can actually recognize that they're not in business, whether it is Push or the Winners Paltrow company, I forget the name now. They're not in the business of making you well. They're in the business of profiting. That's the reason why they can do jade eggs for I don't know how many hundreds of dollars and cruise ships for like $2,500 or whatever it is. They're not interested in making you well. If they were interested in making you well, they will tell you, they will ask, the first thing that they would ask you is like, what are you eating every single day? And what are you feeding your mind? How is your stress level? What kind of mindfulness techniques are you doing to help you reduce stress and, and center every single day? All of which you can actually do for just a few dollars a month. <laughs> to what you were saying, you know, Ayurvedic medicine and, and even Western medicine 
you can go to the supermarket and for less than $20 buy four or five herbs, blend them in your house, use them for the entire month and help you with whatever it is that you're struggling with. It depends on what you're struggling with, but you once you find the ones that you know are going to help you, you can use them and find them relatively easily for very little amounts of money. So it's important that we take all of these really fancy people from it with a grain of salt. And I would love it for, you know, whether it is the Kardashians or Gwyneth Paltrow or all those people to bring in more of these multicultural type practitioners and healers into their platform. They have immense platform and they can do so much better. Yeah, continue to profit. If that's what you want to do, absolutely. I'll be the first one to applaud you for that. But let's find a way to truly make a difference in the life of those people that follow you and hopefully attract a different demographic that could also benefit from these practices. And I almost wonder if like it's simultaneously benefiting but harming this Mm. in the sense that if you see so, I mean, it's hard to avoid the Kardashians, right? Like I'm just curious. So I get drawn into it, you know, and I... It's like sometimes I don't even know why. I'm just like, wow. But is it just that they've marketed themselves so well, they play to my curiosity. So that's like, I'm almost being manipulated into being interested in them in a way. You know, like if I have to step back, they're talked about so much, you almost can't help it. And even the controversy is, it's like, is it all just this one machine that you hate watch people or you... You watch them just to find their (laughs) flaws, you know, like you just can't, it's hard to get away from it. I wonder with the harm, if if you see the Kardashians uh, practicing Ayurveda, yes, it might be promoting it and teaching people about something that they don't know about, but are they simultaneously thinking, well, that's not for me, it's too expensive. If the Kardashians aren't promoting the inexpensive access to things Mm -hmm. like that, then someone's only associating it with the high cost. If they're only going to these expensive stores and buying expensive things, you know, like going to the high-end markets as they often do and buying the high-end packaged foods, like you could start to associate Ayurveda, yoga, plant-based eating, all of these things that they talk about with being inaccessible. And I think part of your point is that like we need to promote different kind of levels of this from the beginner's mind, like not just promoting the advanced techniques, not just promoting the perfect people. Even for me, the issues when it comes to our physicalities, which is something I believe you touch upon in the book too, about how health can look differently. And there are things like fat shaming and how we've been conditioned through marketing to think that health looks a certain way. And that's not just skin color, that's body shape, that's age. And how if you don't fit into those models that we're constantly seeing, you may feel like, am I not healthy? Or am I going to be shamed if I show up somewhere with a different size body, you know, whether it is something like yoga? Am I going to be shamed because I've never done yoga before and so I'm afraid to go to a class because I don't want to look foolish? Or what about donations? Like, you know, yoga is a whole thing all the different challenges where is it access? Like you don't have a class around you. Are the classes too expensive? I mean, my Mm -hmm. mind's blown when I think about all the years of yoga and various forms of exercise I've done. It's really pricey in a city like Los Angeles. 
And the pandemic, to your point too, has opened up my mind to, wow, I'm reminded that I can do yoga at home for free. I don't have to go pay some expensive yoga studio, a monthly membership like I used to. Like what I pay now to work out is literally, I think, a tenth of the price of what I used to pay before the pandemic (laughs) when I was going to in-person classes. And now it's like, why was I paying so much money to do that? I valued it, sure, but it was very financially challenging to justify paying that price. And I wonder how many people associate something with like yoga with only a high price because not Mm -hmm. enough people remind you, like you said, you can do this stuff at home. You can do this stuff at the grocery store. You don't have to do all these high-end experiences that you see celebrities and influencers promoting. Yeah. It's the part that is the most heartbreaking for me. It's the reason why I created the Reclaiming Wellness Educational Initiative is because you realize that I had so much pushback from people with plant-based eating was the stuff that I got the most pushback. Oh, you know, veganism is for the elite or it's for the really wealthy or it's for fancy people or it's for white people. I can't tell you how many times I heard that. And it's like, wait a minute, every culture in the world has had plant foods that they consume the most. That was the bulk of their diet. It consisted of plant foods. And if you go back to the time where, you know, the paleo people lived, because, you know, the paleo diet became so popular a couple of years ago, those people that ate meat, ate meat only when they could afford it. So it was actually, it was the flesh that was the food of the rich. And it was the whole foods that were the foods of the rest of us. And we need to go back to that. We need to reclaim it in some way. So to me, it was really heartbreaking to see what you are talking about and what you've experienced yourself. No, yoga is not just for privileged people that can actually afford to pay $25 a class and whatever other, you know, herbalism and Ayurveda. I just, I appreciate the wealthy celebrities and the influencers bringing awareness But I also urge them, because they're the owners of the space, urge them to do more, to bring other types of demographics. And it will benefit, at the end of the day, it will benefit the brands that you're working with, the products that you're trying to sell, but the community as a whole. Remember, we are not the sum of us. Just like there's this concept called Ubuntu, which is the African philosophy that I mentioned in the book, about how we, I am because we are. And if we can only figure out a way to heal at a community level, then it will be so much harder, so much easier for us to stay healthy. I just could bask in all of your statements here, Jovanka. It's so wonderful and just deeply grateful for all of these discussions that we're having. And there's so much to say around all of this. You know, I think this idea that you bring up in your book too about decolonizing the mind is really fascinating. I would love to know what decolonizing the mind means to you. What does that statement mean? Because I don't think I've ever heard it before. Yeah, it's a concept that I started to explore when I was researching the book and I started to interview all these beautiful women of color that are in the wellness world And they were the ones that opened my mind to this idea that we cannot, as people of color, 
or as people that have never incorporated some of these practices into their lives, we cannot continue to go at it from the lens of the colonizer because that lens is most likely very different from the original practice and the original intent. So when we decolonize the mind, we also move away from this concept that we need to be perfect or that we need to be filling the blank before we incorporate something. And you hear it all the time in society, especially when it comes to body shaming, for example, where you hear people say, you know, I will go to that yoga class when I lose the 30 pounds because I don't want to be wearing this clothing when I'm actually, you know, a little bit heavy. Or I will wait until I find the love of my life before I learn to cook, for example. This is something that I hear all the time. I'm single. I'm not interested. Once I get married, I will. That's a very colonizer mentality, the mentality of the people that told you that you need to fit in this form in society, that you need to, you know, be married by the time you're 30 and have a career and a a house with a picket fence and hopefully three kids and live happily ever after. And we know today that this is not the reality for most of us. And our concept of happiness does not need to conform with whatever society tells us that it does. And that's a great way to start decolonizing the mind. So we need to stop looking at the people that created those rules in society some some 300 years ago because that society was very different than ours. And then we need to make the rules that are ours, that work for us and our reality. And from there, recognizing we're completely imperfect and what a beautiful thing it is to be imperfect. We are unique, we're a universe, and I'm going to find a way to go into the spaces. And if the spaces are not open yet, then let's create the space. Let's find a way to decolonize the practices by creating the spaces in our own communities, whether it is training to become a yoga instructor and then opening your little studio in your community and offering classes. I promise you people will flock because they're so good that you will try once or twice in a space that is inclusive and is welcoming. And oh my God, you will luckily and happily ready to go back to those spaces again. Absolutely. And that leads me to, I think my final thing that I'm curious about in this moment, although everything you've shared, I feel like I could ask so many follow-up questions. Before we started recording, you talked about how making money to you is a way for you to help other people. And I want to give you an opportunity to put that into your own words and also answer the question of how do we find the balance between, as you mentioned, doing things for profit versus true wellness. I I believed for years that the two could go hand in hand, but Mm -hmm. it's a bit complicated, right? Because I've experienced too how all the different ways in which I can monetize my work there are times where it's easy to slip into a place of focusing so much on your financial well-being as an individual that it can take you away from a mission to support other people with their well-being. And it's a lot harder than I initially realized, you know, absolutely believe people should be paid for their worth, you know, but then it becomes tricky of, what about the people that can't afford to pay people things? Mm-hmm. Like, how are they served? And that's something I, I ask myself constantly when I'm charging for something, when I'm promoting something. I'm like, wow, like, what about the people that won't be able to access this? 
Yeah. And it's complicated in my mind. So I'm curious how you navigate that, Jovanka, and how you see other people doing it well. Uh, Are there examples like the Kardashians of people who maybe kind of (laughs) missing the mark and, and excluding people in their work because everything seems to be driven more about the profit? I think that probably sums up why I am curious about people like the Kardashians. I think I'm constantly asking myself, who are these people and why do they do what they do? Because to your point, you could view them as a family that's obsessed with fame, status, and money. But I also see the humanity in them. And I think that draws me in. But then I also don't know how much of the humanity I'm witnessing has been marketed to me. you know, And that's part mm-hmm. of what makes it so tough is even to your point, a studio could be very performative in their approach. They try to bring in diversity, but are they trying to include people so they can make money off of them? Or are they trying to include people and just happen to be making money? It's like, this is the challenge. So how have you approached this in your work? And what has gone well, or maybe what has been a challenge for you in this? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I agree with you. I think I've struggled with this. Uh, as much as I've been in business for 10 years and I love educating. I am an, a teacher at heart at the end of the day. And I recognize that as a teacher, I cannot make money just by teaching and build my own generational wealth and, and make sure that, that I'm well taken care of, especially as I grow older. But at the end of the day, at the heart of it all, the desire to make a difference in someone's life has always been present. So for me, it has been a combination of things. Number one, there is the realization that I have a lot of knowledge and that I can make a significant difference in somebody else's life. And then as a business person, recognizing what the market value is for the services that I provide, I actually charge based on the market value for the services that I provide. But like you, I spend years wondering how can I monetize this? And who are the people that I'm leaving behind? And once you get wrapped up in the day-to-day, you sort of walk away from that thought process. And it was not until this big smackdown of the pandemic that I had to take a step back and take inventory of my life as a business person and recognize what I came here to do, I'm doing, but only to some extent. Yes, I am making a difference, but am I truly making a difference the way that I wanted to when I left a world? And so that's when I decided I want to, how can I complement my salary in a way that frees up some time to allow me to teach and educate people that cannot afford the regular prices of a coach? And that's when I created this initiative. Luckily, In the United States and as freelancers or as entrepreneurs, we have resources where we can write off certain expenses and things and balance that way. But to give you another example, one of the things that I've been struggling with for years is I want to create an herbal supplement line. I've been working on this for seven years. First of all, there's not enough money. You need like hundreds of thousands of dollars to start a proper company. But secondly, As somebody who, like you, is critical to me that I follow a lifestyle that protects myself, the community, and the environment as a whole, and the supplement industry is one of the biggest culprits when it comes to using plastic that cannot be utilized, that, you know, there's a phrase for that, single-use plastic, I believe, and that just 
makes me cringe. Like I get literally my, the back of the hairs on the back of my neck, just stand up. I want a brand that uses the least amount of plastic that is packaged in a way that is sustainable and using products and ingredients that are also sustainable, but also very effective and that are priced at a level that most people can use because what is the point of talking about this and writing about it and educating people if tomorrow I'm going to come up with a supplement line where each bottle is $30? Like, I can't do that. So if that means I have to wait until there's even more money in the bank for me to make that shift, then that will be what has to happen. And it's heartbreaking because it's been in my heart and soul for seven years. And it is, hasn't happened yet, but I refuse to walk away from these basic principles that are important to me and that I know could make a big difference. Imagine if tomorrow every supplement company did that and we could start educating people in more ways than one. It's, yeah. So it's, it's a struggle and it's, but the passion is still very much there and I love what I'm doing and I hope one day to be able to do it. If I'm, you know, 50 or 60 when that day happens, then that's what needs to be. Well, I fully support you in that. And gosh, I mean, the supplement industry is something else we could go on and on about. (laughs) It's all complex. And I think it's fascinating to me how is simple yet complex at the same time. And I think acknowledging that, that this is not easy. This is not straightforward. But if we do simple things day by day for ourselves and think about other people along the way, then at least we're making some progress versus standing still and just feeling unsure about what to do. And thank goodness for people like you that have broken it down through your book, through your social media, through your advocacy. Like It's just so wonderful. So I'd love to leave off with where somebody can go next. You have a wonderful website, which I'm going to link to in the show notes. I'm going to link to your fantastic book, Reclaiming Wellness. Your social media will be there. So I will put all of these links in the show notes for this episode at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com with that full transcript. All the quotes I've been typing out will be highlighted there. There'll be a video eventually. So Javanka, in your own words, can you share with us, what is the journey like for someone who's listened to this episode and they want to dive more into your work? They want to take the next step with you. Where do they begin? Definitely. If you want to hear more about me, you can type in my name, Google my first name or Reclaiming Wellness, Javanka. Chances are you're going to find me. But Even beyond there, what I want people to take with them is when you reclaim some of these practices, regardless of what part of the world you come from or who's your ancestry or which practice calls you the most, remember that when you incorporate them, you're not only honoring the lineage of the people that passed on that knowledge all the way up to today, you're honoring this amazing thing we call a body and you're honoring the people that come after you. You are a vessel for education and you have the ability to pass on that knowledge. So it won't benefit just you, it will benefit generations to come. So whether it is with the book or with any other book, podcasts like yours or books like yours or anything else that calls you to reclaim some part of your wellness practice, 
do it. You definitely won't regret it. So well said. Thank you for everything that you've shared with us today, your honesty, your transparency, your just like blown away and so deeply grateful because I've been wanting to talk about these things and better understand them. And you just did such a great job. So (laughs) I absolutely will. We'll link in the description of this episode. If you don't want to go to the show notes, there'll be a link to Jovanka's website right there to make it super easy for you. So you don't have to go far. Just look down in the description, click that button and uh, you can start the journey with Jovanka or continue it, I should say, after this wonderful episode. Thank you so much for being here, Jovanka. I'm deeply grateful for you. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure, as always. (laughs) And thank you so much for having me for the conversation. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.